Well, good morning. My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here. And again, if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome uh, to Sycamore. We're so glad to have you with us here today. And if you are new here, on the very back cover of your bulletin, there's a QR code there. If you'd like more information about our church or if you'd like to connect with a staff member, you can scan that and give us some information. And actually, the first person that comes to is me. And so if you'd like to have coffee or something, I can, I'll respond to that and we can get to, get to know each other. But if you are new here, what's about to happen here is not me up here giving a speech Uh, The last thing you need to hear is from me. But what this is, is we're going to walk through God's Word together. And we're going to see what it meant back then and apply it to ourselves today as God's authoritative Word. And so with that in mind, you're going to want to have the text in front of you. It's found today on page 10 in your order of worship. It's also found on page 924 in that Bible there in front of you on the chair. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one with you as our gift. We would love for you to have that. And so as you're turning there, kind of get us into the spirit of this text today. You know, I knew something didn't feel right. That's what my friend Mike said to the police officer he was talking to. You see, Mike was the youth director at the church that I was attending at the time right after grad school. And Mike had sold an old car and he had gotten a handful of $100 bills for it. And he, remember, and he said, I remember thinking at the time they didn't feel right. And then he went to the bank to deposit them. Fun fact, if you tried to deposit fake money at a bank, you get to talk to a police officer. <laughs> Mike found that out. And so, yeah, he was handed fake $100 bills because the American C-note is like the counterfeiter's dream. They're always trying to fake that thing out. And I learned that just this week that one of the shorthands that law enforcement uses is touch, tilt, look at, look through. This is how you, you if you have a, a $100 bill especially, you touch it, you tilt it, you look at it really carefully, and you look through it. That's counterfeit detection. But to do that, you kind of got to know what the original really looks like as well. And so you should spend a lot of time around $100 bills. So, you know, Lord, please help us to be counterfeit um, aware by showering us in $100 bills, right? Well, that's kind of what the book of Colossians is at this point. So in the face of these false teachers coming into this little church, they've been denigrating Jesus. They've been denigrating the gospel, putting grace itself at risk. Paul writes one of the most Jesus-focused books in the New Testament. Now, if you've been here a while, you're kind of paying attention, like, wait, aren't all the books about Jesus? Yes, but this one is, like, really about Jesus. Like, Paul pulls out Jesus, polishes him all up, gets that new Savior smell all over him. He really wants you to see how beautiful this guy is and how amazing Jesus is, so that when faced with false teaching, his readers can touch, tilt, look at, and look through. So with that in mind, would you please turn with me now, page 10 in your order of worship, page 924 in the chair Bible, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you 
to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now this is God's Word. Let's pray together. How gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to Your Word this morning, we ask that once again You would open this text up to us, that by Your Spirit You would give us truth for our growth and for our transformation. May we see Jesus in all of His beauty in the magnificent Gospel. May we long for Him, Father. We pray that You would change us today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Colossae, we've just started this book, just a kind of quick refresher from last week. Colossae is a very small town at a crossroads outside some bigger cities. It's a has-been town past its prime. This is the smallest town Paul ever wrote to, and Paul has never been to this church. Paul instead is in prison himself. The pastor of this church comes to visit Paul and give him a report about what's going on in this congregation, and he gives him the good things, and then he gives him the struggles that he's having with these false teachers who have come in, they're denigrating Jesus, they're basically saying Jesus is not enough, you have to have this extra, fuller, truer knowledge to be a real Christian, your pastor hasn't told you the whole story, so they come in and here's the rest of the story, basically. And so Paul writes to address these problems, extolling the beauty and the worth of Jesus. And in today's text in particular, we're going to see that these false teachers have caused difficulty in the church. As you can imagine, it causes lots of disruption when influential people come in and say, your pastor's not saying the whole truth, it's actually this. And the pastor's saying, no, that's not that. It causes contention. They each side gets followers, all of a sudden the peace is disrupted, and they're living this out. And so Paul prays for them that they would know more of who they really are in Jesus and that they would know and live out that reality in their life. And that gets us to our theme for today. Here's where we kind of orbit around today is this. Being rescued and then adopted makes it a joy to learn about your family. So let's jump right in. The first thing we're going to see here is we're going to see a new family identity. We're going to jump to the very end, those last couple verses, because there's where Paul states unequivocally who they are in the gospel. They've been rescued, he says, delivered from the power, from the domain, from the territory, from the authority of darkness. Paul says, he reminds them they were utterly hopeless in their sin completely enslaved because sin in the Bible is a power that seeks to dominate us. It seeks to control us. It has us in slavery and bondage, and we can't just get ourselves up out of it. We have to be set free. We are hopeless. We are helpless. We need a conqueror to come in and beat the power that has us and set us free. And Paul and the rest of the New Testament, indeed the whole Bible, present Jesus as that conqueror. Jesus Christ who comes and who lives the life that we should live before a holy God, completely fulfilling the righteousness that God demands. And then Jesus comes and he dies the death that we should die before a just God who demands that sin be paid for. The wages of sin is death and Jesus paid it for his people, undeservingly. 
He who knew no sin became sin for us. And his resurrection then proves that he didn't deserve to die, that the gospel is real. And so when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel, you are united to him, free and forgiven. Paul is showing all of that to them right here at the very beginning. He says, you've been delivered by that gospel. Paul uses culturally known language to them to really help them get this. He says, look, you guys have been rescued or liberated, and then you've been relocated. Rome did this all the time. This is how the Roman Empire expanded. They would go into an area, they would conquer the indigenous people, they would remove these indigenous people, they would turn around and go grab some Romans, especially of the underclass or poor class, and say, hey, check this out. We're going to take you over here and give you land and give you citizenship. Build a town. Go to town and do this. This is how Rome expanded. So he uses that exact same analogy to these Roman citizens saying, that's what Jesus has done for you. He's picked you up out of your slavery and your poverty, and he's given you a whole new life. They've been delivered. They've been transferred or transplanted, he says. I mean, this is aggressive language. Are you picking up on this? Jesus comes in, and Jesus raids and conquers the domain of darkness. And then he sets his people free. He rescues slaves and resettles them. Oh, this is no gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is Jesus, the conquering hero. Here's how I put it for the boys and girls. Boys and girls, let's look at your page 10 there at the bottom, verses 13 and 14. Here's how I put it for you. It says, God rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and put us under King Jesus instead. In Jesus' kingdom, we are free and forgiven. You see, boys and girls, Jesus sets you free from your sins. He gives you the gift of being one of his people. And for the rest of us, did you notice what the English version of verse 14 said? It says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Note well, right there is the biblical definition of redemption. It's defined as the forgiveness of sins. You know, throughout church history, people have constantly tried to change the definition of redemption to something else, anything else, because redemption of sins puts us, puts us in such a helpless position. In the ancient world, the word redemption was a very specific word. It meant the purchase you made at the slave auction. You didn't use this for any other place in commerce. You went to the slave auction to redeem a slave for your own. And so when the Bible says that we have redemption in Jesus Christ, it's making the unequivocal claim we were slaves and someone had to pay the price to set us free and make us their own. That's redemption. It's an objective reality. Jesus purchased us. He paid the price to rescue us. Biblical redemption is the forgiveness of sins, the liberty, the release at the price Jesus paid. Paul anchors them in that reality first and foremost because being rescued and then adopted makes it a joy to learn about your family. And so anchored in that reality, Paul then shows how he really wants to help them. So let's jump back up to the beginning and we see here now praying that we know how to walk. So in their difficulties, in this hard situation, what does Paul do? Paul says, we're praying for you. Notice what he says. He says, we have not ceased to pray. It's a metaphor. It's an idiom. 
but it means regular, frequent, all the time. It doesn't mean completely uninterrupted. They did nothing else. Okay, don't force that onto the metaphor. These Christians are in a tough place, and so Paul and those with him pray for them. And notice what's kind of hinted at here. Paul believes that prayer, not his letter, is the main weapon to use against these false teachers. And he prays for what? He prays for knowledge. He prays for wisdom. He prays for their understanding. Theological and practical information then applied in their life. Rather than some mystical fullness that these false teachers kept trying to get them to add. Add to Jesus some better knowledge. There's a a more full Christianity out there if you'll just do these things or if you just know this secret we have. Paul says, no, he prays that they could have this knowledge right now. Did you pick up on that? Paul assumes his prayer can be answered, that they can have this knowledge right now. The false teacher said, no, the the full knowledge of Christianity, the full-orbed version, the fullness we're offering you is only available through us and our teaching. We're the conduit for this. You need us because Jesus isn't enough. And Paul says, no, I pray that y'all would have this knowledge right now to experientially and practically know God's will. Isn't that an amazing thought? Paul says, I want you to know God's will right now. That with spiritual wisdom, with spiritual understanding, with insight, not just more Bible facts, but real understanding about what God wants your life to look like. I really want us to get this. What we're going to do, we're going to kind of splice together some of the kids' translation and the ESV to kind of land on this. So I want you to look with me first at the kids' version of verse 9. Where Paul says this, says, as soon as we heard your pastor's news about y'all, we started praying and asking God to fill up your hearts and heads with his truth. Okay, why? To what purpose? Now let's jump to the ESV. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. He says, I want to fill up your hearts and your heads with knowledge so you'll know how to walk. Or as we put for the kids, I think we said for the kids, how to walk out what Jesus has put in you. See, God puts this knowledge in you not to puff you up, not so you can beat your community group people at Bible trivia, but you can walk this out. So you can live in a way that is worthy of Christ. Here's how a a smarter, more godly British pastor put it, named Dick Lucas, right outside of London, says this. says, in Paul's gospel, the goal is no mystic, awe-inspiring apprehension of divine mysteries reserved for an elite It's rather an intelligent grasp of what the will of God demands in daily living. See, in the face of false teachers coming and saying, well, to really be a Christian, you got to have this like kind of mystical extra knowledge that kind of titillates your senses and gives you the chills. Paul's like, no, it's intellectual content lived out practically, super easy. I don't know what they're talking about. Paul says, I want you to live worthy, appropriately as a follower of, of Jesus, fully and totally pleasing to him. I mean, imagine that. Paul assumes their lives can make Jesus smile. Paul assumes their life right now can make Jesus smile. It's really possible. You believe that? You believe that your life as a Christian can actually make Jesus smile. You can live in a manner that's worthy or pleasing to Jesus. 
Paul does, and Paul prays that theirs can. You see, the, the false teachers came in, and they said, no, 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 Jesus is not enough by himself. we got to add this stuff. And so you Colossians aren't quite enough because you only have Jesus because your pastor here is only telling you about Jesus. Here's the rest of the story. You need us to step in and give you the, the secret sauce. Not so for Paul. He prays that they could please Jesus with their life right now, that they could walk worthy of their new family right now because being rescued and then being adopted makes it a joy to learn about your family. So we go from praying that we know how to walk to next Paul's going to show us, going to kind of switch some words around, praying that we walk how we know. And here's what I mean by that. Last week, this, the, the, the text kind of went along with the value we have as a congregation of grow. So our, our four principal values as a congregation are live, grow, thrive, go. Grow is kind of, you know, as it says, treasuring the gospel, learning more about the gospel and what he's taking it to your heart. That was last week. This week, we kind of see the value of thrive where we walk out the gospel. The gospel's put into us, then we walk it out under our value of thrive. Here's what that looks like. So the, the early American theologian pastor named Jonathan Edwards. Anybody, okay, class participation, Jonathan Edwards, right? Raise your hands. Okay, yeah, remember in high school they made you read that excerpt, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Okay, which by the way, if you ever have a chance, Google the whole thing. It is a grace-saturated sermon, but your class book probably took the two or three paragraphs that are really harsh and mean to show you here's an example of Puritan literature. Okay, that's not. Anyway, Jonathan Edwards, saturated in grace, saturated in the gospel, says basically, look, you don't believe something until you really know it. You may say you know it, but until it comes out of you, you don't actually believe it. I mean, if you're like me and you need the sock puppet version of that, here's the sock puppet version. We show what we really believe with our butts. True story. All right, here's what I mean. You're in a difficult situation. Life's hard. You articulate what you know. I know God has a plan for me. I know God has said nothing can happen in my life apart from his will. I know Jesus said that he has come, that I could have life and have it more abundantly. And what's my next word? But, and then we articulate what we believe. See, we said what we know, and then we say, but, and then we articulate what we believe. But if I don't get this job, I doubt God's love. If I don't get this relationship, I feel less than. If I don't get this, Jesus really doesn't feel like enough. I don't believe in my heart Jesus is enough. And so what Paul wants to do is Paul says, hey, let's take what you know and let's take what you believe. And why don't we bring those into alignment? That's what I'm praying for you today. I'm praying that what you know and what you believe will line up so you can walk in this freedom that you have. Let's, so let's walk how we know. And Paul says, here's how we do it. Four little things right here in the text. Bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge, being strengthened, giving thanks. And we'll walk right through these very, very quickly. So bearing fruit in every good work. Paul basically says, look, doing good works is the natural result of knowledge of God. If you know God, you do good things. It's just that simple. Doing good for others makes Jesus happy. And I get to say it that way because the word Lord there in verse 10 refers to Jesus, not God the Father. We're talking about pleasing in a way for Jesus. Paul prayed that their knowledge would increase. Now he prays that it would continue to increase, that they would know more and more of this great God. Because getting to know God better leads you to thriving, to walking out the gospel. 
Oh, it's Sycamore, we want you to learn more about God. We want you to grow. So we have Sunday school every Sunday. We get down in community together in Bible study. We have Bible studies throughout the week here in this building and in restaurants throughout the city. We have them in people's homes. We got methods for you to grow in your knowledge of God because the more you grow, the more you'll thrive. You'll have the resources to walk out of. So bearing fruit in every good work. The next thing he prays for is increasing the knowledge of God. The third thing he prays for is being strengthened with all power. You can always tell when Paul gets really fired up because he gets redundant. And right here, what he actually says literally is, man, I pray that you all have power in all power, that you're empowered in your power. He's like, he's like I can't, I can't, I, it's so, so excited. And you see, and he's so excited because the false teachers said that, well, your difficulties, that what, what's going on in your church is only overcome with the special knowledge that we bring. There's resources available only to those who do the special thing or have the secret sauce. We've got to add to Jesus to get power. And Paul says, no. He, what does he say? He says, from the deep well of God's own glory and God's own strength, we can have power. We can be empowered with power. Paul's redundant here because we desperately need God's power in the face of our utter sinfulness and helplessness. You see, false teachers, by definition, always have a shallow view of sin. That's how they can disparage Jesus and the gospel because they're not desperate for grace. They don't see themselves as that bad. God's not that great. And so the gap between them is not that big. They got this. It's a layup. But Paul says, no, we need to be rescued. We need to be transferred. We need redemption. See, sinners like me and sinners like you, we need God's power to deal with a sinful world full of sinful people. And why? He tells us the second half of verse 11, for all endurance and patience with joy. Again, it seems like he's being redundant. In English, it is redundant. In Greek, it's not. It's actually ironically specific. The word here for endurance deals with difficult circumstances. And then the word here for patience deals with difficult people. So difficult circumstances and difficult people. Anybody got any of those? Yeah, exactly. Here's how he put this together for the kids' version to help make sense of this. Let's look at verse 11 of the kids' version. It says this, God then makes us stronger by his power so we can joyfully put up with hard people and hard things. You see, the false teachers in this little church, in the little town of Colossae, they were difficult and they created difficulty. And so Paul prays that they would have God's supernatural power to deal with these false teachers with joy. Did you catch that? Not just to endure it like Eeyore, but to actually have joy in the process. You see, here's another hint he's given us. False teachers, they rarely have any joy. They don't have any bandwidth for joy because they're too busy earning the secret sauce, making sure that they have it right. They've denied grace, and so they're too insecure for joy. And so are their followers. Joy is a gut check for if you're following and living in the gospel or if you've absorbed some false teaching. Because the gospel gives you security in Christ. And from there you can have joy. Whereas the false teaching leaves you a little bit insecure. And insecure people never have joy. It's a gut check. And here's what's beautiful about this. 
Paul says, I pray that you'll have joy as you endure this situation. And then what's so great is if you see in the rest of the Bible how it works, is that as you get out of this difficult situation, you get to keep the joy. It doesn't leave. See, Paul prays that they would have a different quality of life, one drenched in joy. Now, the final way he shows us to walk worthily of Jesus to make Jesus smile is, he says, giving thanks or being thankful. See, false teachers are never thankful. They've attained the special knowledge. They figured out the secret sauce, and so God owes them. They found the hoop. They discerned the hoop. They figured out how to jump through the hoop. God owes them at this point. You don't say thank you for a paycheck. You've already done the work in advance. It's your right. You earned that. And if Jesus isn't enough, if we have to close the gap, then we aren't thankful either. We're insecure, prideful, and demanding because we earned that. See, but Christianity is anchored in gratitude because we were dead and now made alive. I mean, just look at this passage. Look at all of God's actions. What does God do? God qualified us. God delivered us. God transferred us. God redeemed us. God forgave us. Us didn't do much. See, because of the objective, aggressive grace of verses 13 and 14, we get to land on verse 12. Look with me at verse 12. It says, He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's qualified you. What a great word. I just encourage you to sit there and soak in all the emotive results of that word. God has qualified you. If God has qualified you, you don't need to qualify yourself. You get that? And then to make sure we get it, he gives us images of inheritance, of heritage, of land. This is part of the Old Testament promise of land. There was an old exodus, there was an old promised land, and people got to divide up the real estate. It was theirs. There's a new exodus in Jesus. There's a new promised land in union with him. And we get an inheritance of being part of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. See, the false teachers disparaged Jesus. And they disparage these Colossians as, well, you're not fully Christians. You're lacking a little bit. But Paul points back and says, no, you've been qualified. You've been given an inheritance. You are as in as you could be. And so he leads them in thanksgiving for their present qualifications in Jesus. See, Jesus is enough, and they are too in him. You see, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, you're put in union with him, what the Bible calls it. So what's true of Jesus is true of you. Jesus is the one who's fully righteous before God. Jesus is the one who's fully sinless before God. Jesus is the one who died, paid the wages of sin, and united to him. You're fully righteous, you're counted as holy, and your death to sin has already happened. That's our union. Jesus is enough, and in him we are too. So through the victory of Jesus, Paul is saying here, God has plastered over your life qualified, approved, beloved. What a beautiful thing. So bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge, 
being strengthened and giving thanks. That's living worthy of Jesus and pleasing Him. And Paul presents this as the normal Christian life. This isn't extra special. This isn't what the elite Christians do. This is Christianity 101. Because when you're rescued and then adopted, it gives you joy to learn about your family. All right, so let's wrap this up. Well, today is Communion Sunday. We get to come to the table. And I want you to look with me at the very beginning of verse 12 there in your order of worship, where Paul says, giving thanks. If you could read Greek, you would read the word Eucharisto there, from which we get Eucharist. And if you're from a different tradition, you know they call this table the Eucharist. It's the giving of thanks. So this is a tangible thank you. We come for all the grace that God has given us. We get to participate, commune with Jesus in communion, but we also get to come and give thanks in this thanksgiving meal. And we give thanks and we celebrate. Why? Because we've been qualified, delivered, redeemed, forgiven, made fruitful, given knowledge, and strengthened with His power. What's not to give thanks for? Oh, Christians, this is what you get in union with Jesus. Rejoice and prepare your hearts even now. And if you're here today and you perhaps wouldn't call yourself a Christian, this is why we sing. This is why you see people holding up their hands in abject gratitude. This is why we rejoice to hear weekly the story of God's grace because we're thankful to be free and forgiven, transplanted citizens placed into Jesus. Uh, If you want that, you can have that. And cast off everything you've called religion, everything you think Christianity is, and just place your simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. And you can have all of this. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We especially thank you for passages like this one, Lord, where you make it so abrupt, so clear how gracious and active and powerful you are in our salvation and how powerless we are. How we bring nothing to the table but the sin that makes our salvation necessary. That you do all the work. And we're so grateful. And we're grateful, Lord, as your people for the reminder that after you've done the work, after you've put the stuff in us, you then are pleased when the stuff comes out of us. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to live as becomes a follower of Christ more and more. And Lord, we pray today for those here who don't know you, Lord, that as Jesus Christ has been shown to be crucified for sinners and raised for new life, that you would be true to your promise that when he is lifted up, you'll draw all people to yourself. Oh, would you do your work of salvation even in these moments, Father, and cause many to repent and believe that truly your kingdom would come and your will would be done right here as it is in heaven. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.